Life's better with an auto policy from American Family Insurance. No matter what dreams you're driving towards. That's because our expert agents will make you feel totally protected with the right auto coverage at the right price. You'll also save up to 23% when you bundle auto with home. American Family Insurance. Get a quote, find an agent at AmFam.com. Products not available in every state. Visit AmFam.com to learn how discounts may apply to you. American Family Mutual Insurance Company, S.I. and its operating company, 6000 American Parkway, Madison, Wisconsin. History tells the story of the world and of our lives. Sometimes that history goes bump in the night. Broadcasting from the center of oddity and the supernatural in central Florida, it's the History Goes Bump podcast. True crime. Hello, you spectacular people. Welcome to this 330th episode of the History Ghost Bump Podcast. Ghost tours for the theater of the mind. I am your host, Diane. And this is Kelly. Hey, Kelly, how are you? I'm doing very well. Thank you so much for asking. What we are doing with this episode is starting to bring in some of the haunted true crime that we had been doing over for our patrons who support the show. And we decided to start doing Haunted True Crime here on the regular feed to go along with all of these haunted locations as well. Yes, and I think that our listeners are really going to appreciate that. I think they are, and we know how popular true crime is. Absolutely. So now you have true crime coming at you that's haunted. So not only do we have our history is haunted, our true crime is haunted as well. Better adieu. We're going to be featuring Starvation Heights. I just wanted to take this opportunity to really thank you guys, the spectacular crew and family of listeners for your support when it came to the Guides Association of New York City's nomination for our award for Outstanding Podcast. For those of you who follow us on social media, you know that we did not win Stuff You Missed in History class did, but we still were so honored to have been nominated and it was so great to be around all those people and we had a great time in New York City. We'll be talking about more of that on next week's episode. Now, before we get into this week's episode, we want to welcome into the Spectacular crew, Leanne, Jen, Lisa, Brandy with an IE, Dizzy, Tony, Bex, Brittany with two T's, Kate with a K, Diana, Colette, and Leif. Welcome to the crew, guys. And now, this moment, Naughty. The moment in Oddity was suggested by Lori Aceto Garcia. We all know what a chainsaw looks like, and we all naturally assume that they are used for either cutting up wood or cutting off people's appendages in horror movies. While that last one might seem pretty far from the reason why the chainsaw was invented, it's actually closer than you think. The original chainsaw-like tool was designed in the late 18th century by Scottish doctors, John Aitken and James Jeffrey. This chain handsaw appears in Aitken's Principles of Midwifery or Puperal Medicine. 
A German orthopedist named Bernard Hein invented another chainsaw in 1830 that had a chain link with small teeth guided by a sprocket wheel and was used to cut bone. But regardless of who got there first and who invented what, there was this early chainsaw with a fine serrated link chain that was used in surgery, specifically to cut out diseased joints. But it was also used in symphysiotomy, which was basically cutting away bone, tissue, and cartilage from the birth canal. When a woman was having a difficult labor like breach or the baby became stuck and was suffocating, the chainsaw was far more effective in quickly handling the situation versus a knife. The idea that the chainsaw was actually invented to help with childbirth before it was used to fell trees certainly is odd. And now, this month in history. This month in history was suggested by Shadowhunter on Instagram. In the month of March, on the 5th in 1954, Universal International Pictures released the film Creature from the Black Lagoon. This film introduced another classic Universal monster known simply as the Gill Man. The film was shot in Florida, and the basic premise is that a group of scientists go on an expedition to the Amazon where they find the Gill Man. This creature falls in love with a female team member and kidnaps her. Nearly all the listeners probably know what the creature looks like, but we imagine most don't know that the creature was created by a woman. And that's probably because most people don't know that, since the artist was not credited with this accomplishment for 50 years. Her name was Millicent Patrick, and she began her career with Walt Disney Studios in their ink and paint department. She went on to become one of the first female animators at Disney. She created the animated creature, Chernabog, in Fantasia. She left Disney in 1941 and became a model for a time. Bud Westmore at Universal hired her, and she became the first woman to work in a special effects makeup department. In 1953, she designed the Gilman suit. She was sent on a promotional tour to talk about the creature, and initially it was called The Beauty Who Created the Beast. Westmore was beyond jealous of the attention and insisted that the name be changed to The Beauty Who Lives with the Beast. He was given full credit for the creation, and when Patrick got back from the tour, Westmore got Universal to fire her. The 2019 book, The Lady from the Black Lagoon, written by Mallory O'Meara, definitively proved that Patrick was the designer of the monster. Patrick died in 1998, never getting that full credit, and she would only do small acting gigs after that. But now you know that Anna Prado-Frias' favorite monster was created by a woman. The desire to be thin and healthy has been with us since the dawn of human existence. Many of us have tried some kind of diet fad at least once. Not many diets work because they require deprivation, and humans have a hard time sticking with something that limits them. We crave freedom in all areas of our lives. But for most of us, keeping the pounds off, especially as we age, can be difficult. <laughs> Don't we know it? <laughs> there seems to be only one surefire way to lose weight and keep it off for good. 
but the risk outweighs the result because of the risk of death. Yeah, I don't know if that's such a good risk factor there. (laughs) Yeah. The only sure thing for losing weight is starvation. And that is just what Dr. Linda Hazard was offering the desperate people who came to see her. Imagine a serial killer who is paid to do their killing. Join us as we discuss the history and haunts of Starvation Heights. She looks like the sweet neighbor next door. Her face a little hardened by age, revealed more fully because of the neat bun style in which she keeps her hair. Look out for those women who wear buns. As I look over at Kelly, who's got the, what do you call high, that? The high, high bun? bun? The high messy bun. <laughs> She looks like the sweet neighbor next door. Her face a little hardened by age, revealed more fully because of the neat bun style in which she keeps her hair. There's nothing fancy about her dress, and she seems so concerned and helpful when it comes to health. How could she possibly be a serial killer? And how could a serial killer come from a nice little town across from Puget Sound known as Olala? This was a place where farmers, fishermen, and loggers made a living. Not many people had even heard of Olala, until it ended up in all the papers, with the town entering center stage as headlines splashed across newspapers read, officials expect to expose starvation atrocities, Dr. Hazard depicted as fiend, and woman MD kills another patient. So who exactly was this Dr. Hazard? Linda Burfield was born in Minnesota in 1867. Little is known about her childhood. She married for the first time when she was only 18 years old and had two children. Her marriage did not last. She had big dreams, and those did not include being a wife and mother. And in 1898, she left that life behind. The divorce became final in 1902, and it was that same year that Linda killed her first victim. Linda was a big believer in the idea that too much food was the root of all diseases and that fasting was the cure. Now, I think we can all get behind the idea that giving our digestive systems a little break from food and fasting for a time can be beneficial, and many people do periodic fasts that last a day or two or maybe a little bit longer. Even Jesus himself fasted for 40 days, although that was pretty extreme. Linda had read some books like The Gospel of Health by Dr. Edward Hooker Dewey and devised a plan for a system incorporating extreme fasting. She just needed to test someone. She found a woman willing to give it a try. After several months, the woman died. The coroner ruled that the woman died from starvation and requested that Linda be arrested. There were a couple of problems, though. The woman had volunteered to do the fast, and Linda was not a licensed doctor in Minnesota, so there was nothing that could be done. The coroner also noticed another particular issue. The victim had no jewelry, so he asked Linda about that, and she was evasive. She was able to go on with expanding her work with fasting unimpeded. 
you can see where there's a problem here for the coroner because what do you charge somebody with? This other woman was clearly volunteering, not eating any food of her own volition. It's not like she had a gun to her head or that Linda had strangled her or something. So right. how do you call that murder if somebody says, yeah, I'm voluntarily going to go under a diet that this woman is giving to me? Not to mention that maybe you could say, well, if she was a doctor, you could get her license thrown out. But since she didn't have any licensing or anything, there was really nothing to do. Exactly. Linda met her match in Samuel Christman Hazard, a drunkard who threw away his West Point military career with brawling and boozing. Sam was married to his second wife when he met Linda. but That didn't stop the couple from getting married. Which is just a little bit of a problem. You know that thing called bigamy? Right. <laughs> it's kind of against the law to be married to two people at the same time. So there was a trial for bigamy and Sam went to jail for two years. In 1906, the couple decided they needed to get out of town and start over somewhere new. And they moved to Seattle, Washington. They set up their own health business focusing on fasting. The plan that they designed had a lot more than fasting involved. And the ultimate goal was to more than likely swindle people and send them off into death. Linda had no medical training. I think she'd done a little bit of nursing school or something like that. I think I saw somewhere that she'd been an osteopath's nurse for a while, but she was definitely not a medical doctor or have any kind of medical doctor training. <laughs> but a loophole when it came to alternative therapies allowed her to get licensed to practice medicine in the state of Washington. That must have been a pretty big loophole. I, I'm telling <laughs> I mean, you. Good grief. That's a little scary. Basically, what I think the loophole is, is she was given a license as a drugless therapist or something or doctor kind of thing. As long as she wasn't giving anyone drugs, she was okay to do whatever she wanted to do. Wow. So I think that's the loophole. As long as there's no drugs involved. Kind of like how you have some nurses that can pretty much do the same thing as doctors and... Can't write the prescription. Yeah, I mean, most people who go into a regular doctor these days or even the emergency room, you basically just see a nurse the whole time. True. And she gets the doctor to fill out the prescription for you. Same kind of thing here, I think, is what we had going on. She wrote several books on the positive aspects of fasting, including Fasting for the Cure of Disease. And that's the one she's most well known for. In that book, she put forward her ideas that the best way to cure disease was to remove fat and impurities from the human body which I actually agree with a lot of the principles that she's talking about here. Certainly, She neglected to mention that incorporating torture helped too. <laughs> I don't know that I agree with oh, that. No. At least in her sick mind, this is how this is all working. Hazard started insisting that people call her Dr. Hazard. If they referred to her as Mrs. Hazard, she would say that that name was her mother-in-law's. She made some grandiose claims like many snake oil salesmen. I'm dumbfounded that you folks haven't heard about the concoction in this here bottle. Why, it's the newest sensation to sweep the nation. It's wall drug snake oil, and it's changing people's lives. Man in the last town bought a bottle, and within three hours he was back for more. He said he ain't never seen something that could attract so many women and still rid his barn of vermin. All in the same bottle. Believe it, folks, this here snake oil works. It attracts the opposite sex, thins your blood, exterminates pesky critters, and cures all known skin maladies. What more could you ask for other than maybe a bottle for your own self? What do you say? People would be told that she could cure something as small as a toothache or something big like tuberculosis. 
The Hazards had bought a 40-acre plot of land in Olala, Washington, and named it Wilderness Heights. Linda planned to build a sanitarium there. Until that time, she took the ferry across the Sound to Seattle, where she practiced among a community of freethinkers who liked her ideas. One of those people was a 38-year-old woman named Daisy Maud Hagland. In 1908, she decided to ask Hazard to help her get healthier, and she would become the second known victim. Hagland had a three-year-old named Ivar, who would go on to become a Seattle entrepreneur and restaurateur behind Ivar's fish and chips. Linda put her on a strict 50-day fast. So, Kelly, I think we should go down a little rabbit hole here quick based on the fact that we were discussing what is the difference between sanatorium and sanitarium. You jump first. Hello? Hello? Yes, I'm down here in the rabbit hole and I've brought you with me. So, Kelly, you and I are, were wondering, what is the difference between a sanatorium and a sanitarium? Because right. there's basically a couple of letters difference there. Exactly. Well, that's really kind of all the difference that there is. When I'm looking here on the internet, looking at word choice and such, it says a sanitarium is a facility where people with chronic illnesses or a need to convalesce are treated. Sanitariums were first established in the 1800s, mostly to treat tuberculosis. The purpose of a sanatorium was to first isolate the inflicted from the healthy population and second, afford the patient a healthy environment in which to heal. Before the advent of antibiotics, tuberculosis was a scourge on the population, as we all know. A sanitarium is also a facility where people with chronic illnesses or a need to convalesce are treated. And this is saying that they're basically interchangeable. However, sanitarium is primarily a North American word. Huh. Well, I guess that gives a little bit of explanation. <laughs> yeah, it just basically says there's a difference between their origin. One is from late Latin. The other is from some other kind of Latin. One meaning health giving, the other meaning health. That's interesting because I thought that there was a more significant difference. I did too. I thought that one of them was specifically just for tuberculosis and the other was for other kinds of diseases. And then I've also heard that some of them were similar to an asylum right. versus a hospital setting. Right. I see another thing that says that sometimes sanitariums were used for health resorts, while the other one is more of a medical facility. Huh. Interesting. So maybe that would just be your only difference, but it would appear that you're not wrong interchanging those words and using them in either place. Okay. The strict diet hazard design consisted of an orange for breakfast and some kind of mashed or strained soup for lunch and dinner. Oh, yummy. Tasty. Basically, I've heard that that would either be some kind of potato or tomato. Okay. Everyone was required to endure these horrendous enemas that were given daily, and they would last for hours. Oh, my word. I, I can't oh, even. Lovely. I can't even. Up to 12 quarts of water would be used on one person. People would cry out in pain. Can you imagine 12 quarts of water? I cannot. I would think that that would, as someone who used dehydrate to marathon. Dehydrate you? No, not dehydrate. It would, it would lower the salt in your body, which can be something that kills you. Yeah, because you'd have because an imbalance. Because marathoners, when you're, when you're running and you're intaking too much water, they actually have you take salt tablets. I would imagine you would still absorb a lot of the water through an enema. I don't know. I've never had an enema. Thank God. <laughs> I've never had one either. I But so I, don't I know. mean, 12 quarts is insane. I would think that their intestines would burst. 
Yeah, I mean, I mean, this sounds horrendous. I mean, you're doing it over a course of hours, but it still would make you think that the body would just be like, stop it already. Yeah, I, I don't know. To me, it seems like there would be some some problem with not having enough salt in the body, but mm-hmm. maybe maybe not in this instance because it's on the lower portion of the intestine. I have no idea. I have no medical background. You're not Dr. Rang. No, I'm not Dr. Rang. And I'm not going to insist on being called Dr. Rang either, like this woman. (laughs) This Valentine's Day, Dunkin's got the perfect pairings to show your love. So get down on one knee with a dozen brownie batter donuts and a cocoa mocha signature latte. Or make them swoon with a strawberry dragon fruit Dunkin' refresher with a Cupid's Choice Donut. Are you ready for love? America runs on Dunkin'. Price and participation may vary. Limited time offer. It's the Kia Summer Sticker Sales Event, so give your friends something to look at. Like a and b with an ocean view, an endless field of wildflowers, or a sunset that needs no filter. Make this a summer to share and save with a capable Kia SUV or powerful sedan. See your local Kia dealer or visit Kia.com to learn more. Kia, movement that inspires. Call 800-334-KIA for details. Always drive safely. Sale applies to purchase of specially tagged 2024 vehicles only. Quantities are limited. Must take delivery by 7824. And then there were the massages. Massages sound very comforting, don't they, Kelly? I don't know from this person. (laughs) I would imagine probably not from her, but in general, yes. (laughs) Massages are basically a very relaxing modality, but Hazard's brand of massage consisted of beating her patients. She would use her fist to beat people on the back and on their forehead, and then she'd scream out, eliminate, eliminate, eliminate. Well, I would think they could probably eliminate pretty easily after having 12 quarts of water. For I, would think, <laughs> I would think they wouldn't have anything to eliminate at that point. I'd be like, what else do you think I'm going to squeeze out here? Plus, they're not eating anything. <laughs> right. Can you imagine somebody beating you on the forehead and going, eliminate? I'd have to deck them. I would. <laughs> but at this point, some of these people are probably so starved to death, they don't have any energy. That's true. They probably are super arms. weak. Yeah. Good grief. This is what Daisy endured for 50 days, the second victim that you'd mentioned, Kelly. Yeah, that volunteered. This only stopped when she died. Two more women would join that list of dead patients in 1908. They would be Ida Wilcox and Miss Elgin Cox. I thought that was interesting. They both had similar last names like that. The next year, Blanche B. Tyndall and Viola Heaton would die. Maud Whitney died in 1910, and Earl Edward Erdman died in 1911. That's so sad. It's just one right after the other here. Right. Erdman was a civil engineer from Seattle. He was a believer in this method and decided to keep a diary of his progress. Rather than serving as a record of his success, it helps reveal just how harsh Hazard's fasting method was. It read, February 1st, saw Dr. Hazard and began treatment this date. No breakfast, mashed soup dinner, mashed soup supper. February 5th through 7th. One orange breakfast, mashed soup dinner, mashed soup supper. February 8th, one orange breakfast, mashed soup dinner, mashed soup supper. February 9th through 11th, one orange breakfast, strained soup dinner, strained soup supper. February 12th, one orange breakfast, one orange dinner, one orange supper. Doesn't sound like he'll get scurvy. No, he's got the (laughs) vitamin C covered. Yeah. February 13th, two orange breakfast, no dinner, no supper. February 14th, one cup of strained tomato broth at 6 p.m. That was it for the day. Lovely. 
strained tomato broth, basically water. Yeah, exactly. February 15th, one cup hot strained tomato soup at night and morning. So is the other one cold? I was just wondering the same thing since he specified hot here. Nasty. February 16th, one cup hot strained tomato soup a.m. and p.m. Slept better last night. Head quite dizzy. Eyes yellow streaked and red. Oh, good grief. I mean, hello, this is not helping you at all. You're dizzy because your body is starving to death. It's eating eating itself. It's eating itself, yeah. And they volunteered for this. February 17th, ate three oranges today. February 19th, called on Dr. Dawson today at his home. Slept well Saturday night. February 20th, ate strained juice of two small oranges at 10 a.m. Dizzy all day, ate strained juice of two small oranges at 5 p.m. February 21st, ate one cup settled and strained tomato broth. Backache today, just below ribs. I would say that's probably organs shutting down. I would say that's definitely his kidneys are probably done. February 22nd, ate juice of two small oranges at 10 a.m. Backache today in right side, just below ribs. February 23rd, slept but little last night. Ate two small oranges at 9 a.m., went after milk and felt very bad. Ate two small oranges at 6 p.m. February 24th, slept better Wednesday night. Kind of frontal headache in a.m., ate two small oranges at 10 a.m., ate one and a half cups hot tomato soup at 6 p.m. Heart hit up to 95 minute and sweat considerable. Now, I don't I, know what that means if his <laughs> heart have, was racing, like 95 beats a minute. I would think that that's probably what he meant. I'm surprised he's even coherent enough to record everything. Yeah. yeah. February 25th, slept pretty well Thursday night, ate one and a half cups tomato broth at 11 a.m., ate one and a half cups tomato broth 6 p.m., pain in right below ribs. February 26th, did not sleep so very well Friday night, pain in right side just below ribs and back, pain quit in night, ate one and a half cups tomato broth at 10.45 a.m., ate two and a half plump small oranges at 4.30 p.m., felt better afternoon than for the last week. Now, I don't know if that's where his journal ends, if they just included it for the month, but he's going to die shortly after this. Number one, I don't know how he wasn't feeling a lot more pain than what he had going on here. I mean, he's not talking about what the hunger pains must have been like and other things that must be going on with his blood sugar being crashed. And probably the only thing that was keeping any of his blood sugar normal is all those oranges. Exactly. But this was just to give people a taste of what kind of a diet this was like. Basically, it was water and oranges. Yeah, no pun intended. Yeah, exactly. The authorities started to take notice that bodies were piling up under the care of Linda Hazard, as did the press. Newspapers started reporting on the deaths, but patients just kept coming to Hazard looking for her miracle cure. We have to believe that there had to have been some people that had success and didn't die to get other people interested. I would hope so. (laughs) Because if all you're seeing are negative reports in the paper, who would go there? Exactly. So you have to think that some people are going through this for like a month and going, look, I lost 20 pounds. And people would be like, God, you look great. I'm going to go do that too. And so they would go and do this. I'm assuming that there were some people going through this that were losing weight like normal people would. I would imagine there had to be. But some of these other people may have had some health issues that this was complicating. Let's say they were diabetic or something. You go in and do this kind of a fasting diet, it's going to kill you as a diabetic for sure. Sure. Or they could be people that are just really strong and willful in their mind. And just, you know, if a little bit's going to work, let's just keep doing it. No kidding. 
Perhaps people who didn't have much to steal were just put on the regiment for a month, and since killing them was not a financial pull, they were sent out of the program as testimonials. The truth of the matter ah. is, when you get to the bottom of all this, you find out that she was taking people's jewelry, she was having them sign over all of their money and control right. of their assets that or whatever. That would make a lot more sense. So I would think there are some people here that she's like, well, you don't have any money really for me to take, so why don't I just... So you get to survive. Yeah, <laughs> let you live. You go out and tell everybody how great this has been for you, and we'll get more people coming here. Good grief. That, of course, is all conjecture on our part. We don't know if that's the case in any way. But it seems logical. Yeah. Whispers began to spread that Hazard was practicing some kind of black magic and mind control. Well, you're going to get mind control if you're starving people pretty easily. Yeah, true. Health authorities claimed that their hands were tied when it came to Hazard because she was licensed and patients were voluntarily coming to her for treatment, which is all true. She started performing her own autopsies as well so that she could list what? the cause of death as anything but starvation. Oh, good grief. We're not sure how a naturopath or someone licensed as a drugless medical provider got away with doing autopsies. Yeah, absolutely not. But apparently it did happen. Neighbors started contacting police about seeing these skeletal patients wandering around the property, some of whom would beg them for food. Oh my gosh, it's so sad. I heard stories of several of them trying to run away and getting caught and brought back and that kind of thing, too. That's I think that's terrible. I think that's how a lot of the newspapers found out about this, because you'd get some people who came out of there probably looking pretty skeletal and going, they yeah. starved me to death there and kept me as a prisoner. There was one victim who had not died from starvation at this time. Eugene Stanley Wakelin had a bullet in his head. He was the son of an English lord, but had no money to his name. It is believed that the hazard shot him in frustration because he had no money. They claimed it was suicide. So perhaps our theory on people without wealth getting out of this program alive is not correct. At least for him it wasn't. Well, true. The end would come for Hazard when Dorothea and Claire Williamson came to what locals started calling Starvation Heights. The sisters were hypochondriacs and filthy rich. They were perfect marks for the Hazards. It was 1911 and Hazard told the sisters that the sanitarium was not ready yet, but that she could treat them in Seattle. They rented two rooms at the Buena Vista Apartments. The doctor offered to keep the women's valuables at her office to make sure that they were safe. She then started them on the diet of vegetable broth. They also were given the standard enemas and massage. Lovely. Within a month, the sisters were emaciated. Obviously, a starved brain is not a reasoning brain. Hazard had the sisters transferred to the sanitarium in Olala and obtained Claire's signature on a document giving money to Hazard if Claire should die. The contract also directed Hazard to cremate the body. At this point, Claire was delirious. Somehow the sisters got a message to their childhood nanny named Margaret begging her to visit. I don't think they were telling her, please get us the hell out of here, but maybe they wanted her to come see what was going on and then she would do something to get them out. Yeah, it's, it's hard to say. It didn't seem like they were probably in their right mind at that point. And based on the way that maybe some of these people were being kept prisoners, maybe their mail was being read, so they were carefully wording, her, asking her to come. Right. When she got to Seattle, Hazard met her at her office and told Margaret that Claire had died from cirrhosis. So by the time she gets there, one of them's already dead. Margaret wanted to see the body, so Linda showed her Claire's body at the mortuary. Margaret didn't recognize Claire, clearly because she was so emaciated. 
And if people have done any kind of Googling on Starvation Heights, you'll see Dorothea's picture quite a bit. When they get her out of there, she was 50 pounds. Oh, my gosh. So you can imagine what Claire must have looked like in death. Very similar. It was then that she knew that Claire had starved to death. She demanded to see Dorothea and Hazard agreed, but she warned her that Dorothea was insane. Margaret couldn't believe how thin Dorothea had become. She was going to take her away, but Dorothea insisted that the treatment was doing her a world of good, even though she was skeletal. So I don't know if at this point her starved brain was telling her that or if Hazard had told her, you say anything and I'll kill you. Could be like a eating disorder Mm -hmm. situation, too. That's one thing that did occur to me is if you start down this road, if it turns into some kind of an eating disorder and so your brain just is thinking, yes, I just got to keep losing weight, keep losing weight. Right. Margaret had no legal right to take Dorothea. Obviously, she's an adult. She had signed herself in. And one can only imagine how frustrating that must have been. She stayed and tried to sneak flour and rice into the tomato broth soup fed to Dorothea. We're amazed that Linda let her stick around, but she probably feared if she was not hospitable that Margaret would run to the cops. Margaret would visit other patients at the sanitarium and see how they were doing. Two of those patients begged her to help them escape. They said they were prisoners. And Margaret found out that Dorothea was a prisoner, too. When Margaret informed Hazard that she was leaving and taking Dorothea, Hazard produced a document giving her and her husband legal guardianship of Dorothea. They claimed she would be staying with them forever. Margaret also discovered that the Hazards had been helping themselves to the Williamson sisters' funds. Margaret came up with a plan that included the woman's uncle, and he sent a letter demanding that Dorothea be released from the sanitarium. Hazard gave them a bill for $2,000. At this point, Dorothea weighed 60 pounds. The uncle paid what equated to a small ransom and got Dorothea out of there. Dorothea managed to get her faculties back and helped to pay for the prosecution of Linda Hazard because the state said that they did not have the funds to go after the doctor. Can you imagine you're like ready to sue this person or you want it's them insane. to get I mean, some it's... kind of criminal prosecution and they're like, well, we can't afford it. So they're like, well, I'm going to pay for it. That's crazy. Upon her arrest, Hazard claimed that she was being persecuted. Evidence was provided revealing forged documents and diary entries, and there was no doubt that many people starved to death under the care of Dr. Hazard. Hazard was convicted of manslaughter, but even after all these deaths, she only served two years at the Walla Walla Penitentiary. I love the name of that jail, by the way, Walla Walla. When she was released, she and Sam moved to New Zealand, where she continued to practice her brand of fasting for health. She became very wealthy. Guess they hadn't heard about her there yet quite. Apparently. She returned to Olala in 1920 and finished construction on her sanitarium. She again started starving people to death. I don't even know. I, I, I can't even wrap my head around it, how she was able to just get out of jail and do these same practices again. Yeah. The sanitarium burned down in 1935 and Hazard starved herself to death three years later. Apparently, she was a true believer in her own cure, which then makes one wonder if she was a killer due to neglect and some kind of mental illness or if she was a methodical serial killer. I guess we'll leave it to the listeners to decide. I don't know which it is. Right. I I mean, to me, I feel like she had a mental illness Mm -hmm. and that was the whole thing behind it because otherwise, why would she have starved herself? Exactly. That's what makes me think that there was something wrong in her brain that she really did think Mm -hmm. fasting would help people. Mm -hmm. Yeah. But you could lean towards the methodical serial killer, too, because she was enriching herself quite a bit off these people's (laughs) jewelry jewelry and and their funds. Yeah, it's it probably was a combination of the two, I would imagine. 
In total, there were more than two dozen victims and possibly more. We've heard there could have been maybe 40 victims. Wow. I'm surprised there wasn't more. No one knows for sure how many people the hazards killed, but they rank up there with the most prolific serial killers. The house and sanitarium at Starvation Heights no longer stand today. But when they did, there was reports of haunting activity. Opal and Chuck Abundus owned the Hazard House in the 1990s, and after Greg Olson's book Starvation Heights came out, they started offering tours of the place. People claimed to see strange symbols on the fireplace that indicated that it was the seventh gate of hell. Opal's mother lived next door at the time, and she claimed to hear disembodied footsteps on her porch nearly every day. When she would go to check the porch, nobody would be there. Chuck said, You hear footsteps on the stairs. It sounds like people are walking around upstairs. One time I was in the bathroom and there was no draft down there and it was a warm day and I got the coldest feeling. It felt like they touched me on the back of my right arm and it was cold. A week ago I was wiping off the counter by the toaster and the electrical cord came out by itself and dropped onto the floor. One of the more haunted areas was a small closet in the basement with a small hole cut out of the middle of the door just big enough to slip food through. Many wonder if this was like a solitary confinement for unruly patients. Probably. I would imagine so. A family of four would later move into the house where the Hazards had lived in Olala. They claimed to have experienced unexplained activity and ghostly phenomena over the years. The family claimed that they saw apparitions, felt cold spots, and doors open and closed on their own. The mother was cooking dinner in the kitchen one evening with the stove in front of her and the bathroom door behind her. She turned around while cooking and was shocked to see that every chair from the kitchen had been piled up against the bathroom door. She was the only person in the house at the time and was really freaked out. The attic seemed to have activity as well. Several low ledges were used for storage and a psychic who was visiting the house claimed that several of Hazard's victims were sitting quietly on the ledges, as though they were scared to move. The psychic also claimed that the house was saturated with anguish. Well, that's not surprising. Uh, yeah, I'm, I don't think it takes a psychic to pick up on right. that. Right. Washington State Paranormal Investigations and Research, WSPIR, visited Starvation Heights three times during 2005 to 2006. On their first visit, the group divided into three teams. Each team had a psychic. The owners of the house had been instructed to hide anything that might inform the psychics of what they were investigating. The book, Fasting for the Cure of Disease, was clearly visible when the first psychic entered. The owners claimed that they had not left the book out, and they had no idea how it got where it was found. The group picked up on an EVP that said, help me. The second team caught EVPs also. One EVP stated, are you talking about me now? Another EVP said, take us up or dig us up. Which makes you wonder, were there bodies buried on the property? Could be. It does I make mean, me wonder, where did these bodies go? I mean, did they, after she did an autopsy, did she send them off to a coroner? Or how did they get buried? Well, and who knows, in terms of record keeping, if they even had records of all the people under her care. Sure. Especially maybe. the really wealthy ones. Yeah, maybe people had no idea they were even there. Could be. So this is a family that's living in this house. The sanitarium is gone, and I guess this is the cottage that... The hazards had lived in that was still standing that this family's living in. Dead file shows up and does an episode with this family at this location. And they were in the process when we watched that episode, they were building a new home. Right. Or had almost gotten it completed. And they were using a lot of the wood from the previous home because it was really nice stuff. So he didn't want it to go to waste. <laughs> sure. So he figured, well, I'll just dismantle this house and build a new one over here. Oh, boy. So we don't know if he was bringing some of the energy and activity over to this new house because of that. 
or if there was something else going on, it does seem that there might have been something else going on because Steve is a former police officer detective. So he knows how to interrogate people. And you remember, Kelly, we watched this episode. Oh, yeah. And there was that young man, the son named Logan, and he takes him over into the house and they're talking about some of the activity that he experienced when they were living in this house that's being dismantled right now. Right. And Logan is claiming that he'd seen these ghosts of a little boy and a little girl that he tried to communicate with them in some way. And he mentions, I might have done, you know, one seance in order to communicate right. with them. Right. Yeah, just a couple. And then Steve goes, was it just one or two? And then Logan's like, well, might have been like five or six. <laughs> right. And Steve just keeps looking at him. And then Logan's like, or maybe 15 or 17. Yeah, exactly. The number just kept climbing. And who knows if it was even more than that. Yeah. So clearly this kid was lying about how much he'd been doing. But he'd done a ton of seances in this house where we already had activity going on. Exactly. Amy also picked up on little kids running around the old house. I don't know where they're coming from because there were no children supposedly in these places because the hazards didn't have any children. And certainly she wasn't providing any kind of medical care to them because the state would have come down on her in two seconds because these aren't adults making that decision. Right. Amy described seeing some kind of monster on the property that was almost smothering these children ghosts. Cannon was the name of another son on the property. So they had these two boys, Logan and Cannon, and he saw a male ghost wearing a cowboy hat sitting out by the wood pile. And the reason why he knew it was a ghost is because he could see through him. He also saw that male ghost in the cottage. Amy picked up on this spirit and that he ran the show there. He bragged about that. And she also picked up that a woman had been raped there, probably by him. So it makes me wonder if that's Sam that Cannon had seen, Sam Hazard. And maybe you've got these women that are being starved there. He is a bad dude. Yeah, he is. Did he rape some of the women who were there? Could be. She also saw a woman she described with a broken face that was trying to harm a living woman. This was really weird. It was like they figured out that Claire had been thrown down some stairs and that Hazard was in the house and trying to throw someone else down the stairs since it had worked before. But when Amy had the spirit sketched, it looked like Hazard rather than Claire. But Hazard had starved to death. Is it possible that throwing down the stairs was a villain for starvation since Claire starved and Linda starved? Was Hazard trying to kill the living woman at the house? So we don't know what was causing this activity. Were the ghosts already here? Did the seances bring spirits? Yeah, this was just really confusing to me because as Amy's going through, she keeps seeing this woman who got thrown down the stairs and she's talking to her with this broken face. Like her face had gotten busted when she gotten thrown down the stairs and she kept thinking it was Claire. We don't know what really killed Claire, but I would assume that since Margaret saw the body, she would have noticed if there was some major damage. I would think so, that it would have been mentioned. Yeah, so I'm thinking that Claire was never thrown down the stairs. Now, I don't know. Amy's a psychic, right. so I can't vouch for whether she's getting correct information or not. She seems like she is legit, but then again, it's TV. I don't know what she <laughs> knows know. ahead of time. So it would just be me trusting that, but just in my logical brain... If Claire had been thrown down some stairs and broken all up, Margaret would have noticed. So I'm going to assume that she really did just starve to death. I mean, clearly she was like 50 pounds or whatever. So she was emaciated. We also know that Linda starved to death. She didn't throw herself down some stairs. So she didn't have some kind of a broken face. But definitely when you see the picture that was sketched next to a photograph of Linda Hazard, the sketch and Hazard, the picture, 
they're all the same. Right. So whatever spirit Amy was seeing was Linda Hazard. And she was trying to hurt the mother in this family. And the only thing I could think of is that Amy was picking up, throwing somebody down the stairs, being some kind of interpretation for starving. Maybe she couldn't figure out what the spirits were telling her about starving to death. So she just interpreted that they had died falling down some stairs or something. Yeah, I don't know. I mean, it it is very confusing. Yeah. Or it could have all just been a bunch of BS. (laughs) (laughs) Well, true. (laughs) So I don't really know what to think about that. But I just thought it was really weird because I'm like, well, we know the story and that's not really fitting the story. But yeah, I don't know. I mean, unless somehow maybe a starving victim, one of their clients was thrown down. But, you know, the fact that the the picture looks so much like her, Mm -hmm. like Linda, you know, it's just kind of it's hard to determine. And the picture that was drawn of her didn't show her with a broken face, but Amy kept saying that she was seeing the broken-faced woman. Right. So I don't know what all was going on there. I do know that Dead Files was picking up on something. Now, a lot of comments that I saw that were more recent, like within the last five years, that would have been about nine or eight or nine years ago that they had that episode. More present-day comments from like five years ago are like saying, leave the family alone. They're saying there's no hauntings going on there, that they haven't had any kind of activity going on. But it's kind of hard to say that when you've had TV production crews in your house and True. you're talking to yeah, them and stuff. I mean. <laughs> so apparently there was some haunting activity there, but maybe not anymore. So as is probably clear, the cottage that was a sanitarium was eventually torn down and a new home was built. This was after the family had lived in a place where so many had died and even used the original bathtub where the bodies were maybe dismembered. Oh, good grief. Can you imagine? Ooh. No. And like I said, we haven't heard of any hauntings taking place in the new home. Was Starvation Heights haunted? That That is for you to decide. decide. We want to encourage you guys to check out historyghostbump.com. And if you have any feedback to send us, you can do that at historyghostbump at gmail.com or at any of the social media where you can find us at historyghostbump. We did get an email from Katie. She said, hello, ladies. My name is Katie Meeks, and I just wanted to say thank you for making this amazing podcast. I love history and ghost stories, and this is a great mix of the two. I also wanted to suggest Ohio University in Athens, Ohio. One of your early podcasts was done on the Athens Lunatic Asylum, which is now part of the university. But the university itself has some great history and some other hauntings along with the town of Athens, Ohio. Fun fact, it was actually the first school of higher education in the Northwest Territory. The asylum is still very creepy looking and has a beauty to it. I've been there many times due to me going to the school. It's a really amazing place and has some great history and hauntings to go with it. Well, thanks for writing us, Katie, and your kind comments. So we've added that to our suggestions. Then we got a comment on the website from C. She wrote, hey, ladies, I love history, especially the paranormal. I found this podcast while looking for something spooky to entertain while working the graveyard shift. Housekeeping could be lonely. Thank you so much for accompanying me on lonely nights at the hospital. And then she makes a suggestion of a haunted location in California, which we've added to our list. Thank you so much, C. We got an email from Justin. Hello, Diane and Kelly. Been listening to the podcast for a few months and just heard episode 328 on Victor, Colorado. I took my family there about seven years ago for vacation. We stayed at the Victor Hotel. We pulled in at 10 p.m. and the town was dead. Only a few miners at the bar across the street. We met the hotel caretaker who told us only one other room in the hotel was occupied. We sent my mom, wife, and two sons up the elevator. It wouldn't hold all of us, so Dad and I took the stairs. On the landing is a picture of a little girl. I'm not sure why, but it frightened me from first sight. Something about the eyes and the smile. They didn't seem to go together. Like the girl was smiling with her mouth, but not her eyes. I've seen this in photographs many times, but never in a painting. It was disconcerting. We stayed on the second floor, but I didn't sleep well. I just had a general sense of unease. I heard noise in the pipes many times in the night. At least that's what I thought it was. The next morning, I showed the painting to the rest of my family. 
My oldest son had the same reaction as me, but the others were unimpressed. They did take the elevator every other time, though. I can confirm that it skips the second floor even once with us in it. I thought it was the other guests who were on one of the upper floors. Never saw them, though, not even once. To me, the lobby felt crowded, but there were only six of us. Again, I felt very uneasy. It was like the room was full of people. I only learned the hotel was haunted later. I unfortunately have an unwanted awareness of things and can confirm that the place is haunted. At least I believe it is. I never felt alone and felt like someone was watching me even in the day. The feeling went away when I would go outside but returned any time I went through the door. Still, Victor is a very cool place to visit and I would happily go back. Victor Hotel is beautiful and has great history. Just be ready to feel the presence of things you can't see. Thanks for sharing that, Justin. Kristen made this comment in the crew. Hey, guys, I just started listening to the Hammond Castle episode. My daughter and I visited Hammond Castle many times. The last time we were there, we saw one of the black cats out by Mr. Hammond's grave. We also had an experience where a locked door with no access had the doorknob shaking and rattling near us. We checked to see where access was from the other side, and the door into that room was also locked. All the medieval stuff in there is definitely creepy, and it's worth a visit if you're already going to Salem. And Brandis in the crew wrote, Does anyone else see closed over windows and wonder about the people that used to look out those windows and what they would think of the building in the area now? The thought is so intriguing to me. And one of the crew members, Edward, replied, The Stephen Decatur house in D.C. has a couple of bricked up windows. Decatur was a hero of the War of 1812 who was killed in a duel around 1820. The windows were supposedly bricked up after people began seeing his ghost looking outside. So is that why they close up those windows, do you think? I just thought that was really interesting to ponder. I'd never thought of that when I've seen some of these abandoned buildings with their windows closed up. Who used to look out those windows and are they still trying to do it? I want to thank you guys for joining us for this episode. I've been your host, Diane. And this has been Kelly. You take care now. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. This episode has been brought to you by our executive producers. Dispatches from the Grave Digger. We want to thank Joanna, and I'm sure I butchered her name, for her generous donation to the podcast. And Amy Lynn Hansen, thank you for raising your support. We're going to be moving you into a garden tomb. And welcome into the cemetery, Tamara Vang. You're going to be buried in a garden tomb as well. You can find Hysterigo's Bump on Spotify, iHeartRadio, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, Pandora, Google Play and anywhere you can listen to podcasts.